And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opening up and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and covered their ears and rushed at him with one impulse. When they had driven him out of the city, they began stoning him. And the witnesses laid aside their robes at the feet of the young man named Saul. But they went on stoning Stephen as he called on the Lord and said, Lord Jesus, receive my soul. Then he falling on his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against him. Having said this, he fell asleep. Saul was in high agreement with putting him to death. And he, that day, a great persecution began against the church in Jerusalem. They were all scattered throughout the region of Judah and Samaria, except the apostles. Some devoted men buried Stephen and made loud limitations over him. But Saul ravaged the church, entering house after house and dragging the men and women. He would put them in prison. Therefore, those who have been scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and began proclaiming Christ to them. Uh, please stand singing for the next song. Well, good morning, everyone. <laughs> good to see each one. Steve, thank you for the scripture reading. Tra uh, Pat, I almost said Patrick and Tracy. <laughs> Patrick and Tracy. <laughs> thank you for leading us in worship, in song. Acts chapter 7, verse 55 through 8.5. That's our text for today. I'll let you know right off the bat what our message is about. It's God's methods of multiplication. God's methods of multiplication. That's what we're going to be talking about this morning. Uh, we have so much to be thankful for, don't we? Thankful for Adriana's mom and dad being here. Nice to have you guys here. Uh, thankful for each one that's here. Um, thankful for our salvation Thankful that there is a Redeemer, Jesus, God's own Son. Can we just uh, rest in that just for a moment <laughs> and thank the Lord for our salvation? Uh, we were reviewing in Sunday school the things that we have in Christ Jesus this morning and the things that are no longer ours. <laughs> we're no longer slaves to sin. What a blessing it is to know that. Um, and we, can, and we can be slaves to righteousness because of what Christ has done for us. We've entered into a newness of life. We've been buried with Him in baptism and raised to newness of life in Christ. What a joy. Um, and I'm thankful for this section of Scripture that we have before us today. So before we go any further, let me begin with a word of prayer. And um, Is everyone with me? We're all here. Okay, let's pray. Heavenly Father, I want to thank You for Your Word. Father, I pray You would eliminate distractions from us now. Help us to focus in on Your Word and what You have for us in it this morning, Father. I pray that You would bless what is proclaimed. Keep me from saying anything I should not say. May You be pleased with what is proclaimed and our response to it. Thank You in advance for what You're going to do this morning, Father. Open Your Word up to us in a new and wonderful way. Remind us of things that we've known for a long time and teach us things that we otherwise could not know. In Jesus' name, for His glory, amen. I'm going to begin with a story of two men. Two men uh, whose paths have intersected along the way. One is a doctor, and the other is a politician. Uh, these two men, I, I don't know exactly when they first met, but I do know that they both have an overwhelming interest in the same 
subject, this doctor and this politician have an overwhelming interest in the same subject. Both of these men have sought a cure for the same disease. An infectious, deadly, and scary disease. And the true source of that disease is a matter of some debate. The politician is most likely a patriotic man, politically minded, familiar, very familiar with current events, seems to be seems to be a man with a curious mind, a culturally aware individual most likely. He knows what's going on. Some would say he's a well-read person, especially when interested in a subject he wants to know all he can about it. The doctor has a scientific mind, familiar with the functions of the body, accustomed to making careful investigations, eager to get to ground zero, to fully understand all that has happened. He wants to be thorough, and so he needs and seeks out reliable sources of information. When this doctor finds the cure, he's eager to share it, and the politician is excited to learn of it. These are two men who want there to be no uncertainty as to the extent of the cure or the viability of the vaccine. The politician's name is Theophilus. The doctor's name is Luke. The disease is sin and the cure is Jesus Christ. I'll have you look at Luke chapter 1, the first four verses just briefly this morning. And I'm just going to read them without much comment. What does Luke say in Luke chapter 1, verse 1 through 4? Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile an account of the things accomplished among us, just as they were handed down to us by those from the beginning, were eyewitnesses and servants of the word, it seemed fitting for me as well, having investigated everything carefully from the beginning, to write it out for you in consecutive order, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the exact truth about the things you have been taught. Luke does not want Theophilus to have any uncertainty about the things he's been taught with regard to Jesus. And Luke doesn't want to have any uncertainty either. So he seeks out eyewitnesses and compiles the Gospel of Luke. The Gospel of Luke is intended to give certainty as to the truths concerning the Gospel of Jesus Christ. And Acts is the compendium, if you will, of the advance of the Gospel, the concise but detailed writing of the advance of the Gospel, how it spread and who was involved in that spread of the Gospel. In Acts chapter 7 and verse 8, when we come to Acts 7 and verse 8, it is the narrative of two faithful ministers of that same Gospel, Stephen and Philip. In the text we're looking at this morning, Acts seven fifty six through eight eight five rather that that text Luke would have it known to Theophilus the lover of God that the focus is not so much on the persecution but on the spread of that same gospel through the persecution that comes. Soren has been faithful in giving us these mission moments and many of them include the persecuted church. We looked at some of that this morning. This kind of persecution still goes on today, but the gospel spreads through that. So I want to I speak to you this morning. I, I want to 
bring before us this morning God's methods, God's methods of multiplication. God's methods of multiplication. As I got to thinking about that, I thought it would probably be wise to establish that God is interested in multiplication. That God is concerned with numbers. And this, these verses came to my mind. Isaiah 55, 8 and 9. You don't need to turn there. It's your highlight verse. Verse 8 is, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are my ways, nor are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. What is so interesting about these two verses in Isaiah 55 is their setting. They are set in the context, in the framework of salvation. Isaiah 55 begins with, Come, all you who thirst. There's an invitation for salvation. And Isaiah 55, 8 and 9 is God saying, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, and nor are your ways my ways. In other words, God's understanding of salvation and how He's going to bring that about is beyond our conception. It's bigger than anything we could conceive of. It's better than anything we could conceive of. So what are God's ways and thoughts, His methods of multiplication? Again, I thought it would be wise to establish that God is interested in that thing, multiplication. You may have heard it said, you may have said it yourself, I'm not interested in numbers. And the sentiment is understandable. There's no value in filling chairs or pews with a bunch of people who are heading an eternity, who are heading for an eternity, a Christ-less eternity. There's no value in that at all. Just filling pews with people who are not saved doesn't help anyone. So the sentiment is understandable, but God is interested in numbers. There's a few ways in which He is. Every hair on your head is numbered. Some of us have more hair than others, but every hair on your head is numbered. God knows every hair. There's not a bird that falls from the sky without Him knowing about it. Not a single bird falls from the sky without God knowing about it. God's aware of every bird in the air. He's interested in numbers. It says in Luke 15.7 that there is more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Of course, we know that the 99 need to repent as well, right? But God is interested in the one that comes to repentance. God is interested in numbers. In Matthew 13.8, there's the parable Jesus gives of, of the, the sowing of the seed of the Word of God. And he says about the seed that falls, falls on good soil, he says, and others fell on good soil and yielded a crop. And some, the crop was some a hundredfold, some 60 and some 30. God is interested in numbers. He's interested in multiplication. In uh, Romans chapter 11, verse 25, it says, Israel has... Israel has received a hardening in part until when? Until the full number of the Gentiles has been brought in. Now, we don't know what that number is, but God is interested in numbers. And early, in the, in the early chapters of the book of Acts, there is, it's just this story of multiplication. Uh, it's been said by someone else, and it sounded really good, so I thought I'd share it with you. Never have so few done so much with so little. 
with regard to what takes place in the Gospel of Acts. They had no buildings, they had no budget, they had no plans, they had no um, Bible colleges, they, they didn't have any uh, Christian literature, they didn't have any of that, but the church just exploded on the first day, on, Pente on the day of Pentecost, 3,000 3, were added to their number. That sounds like multiplication. Just a short time later, the number became about 5,000, and then it goes on to say, and God was adding to their numbers daily, multiplying and multiplying and multiplying their numbers. God is interested in multiplication. Jesus says in John 15, 8, by this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples, that you bear much fruit. Not a little bit. By this is my Father glorified that you bear much fruit. In Matthew 28, there's the Great Commission, right? And part of that Great Commission is go therefore and do what? Make disciples. We were talking last Sunday, I believe, about the concept of disciple making, that it's hard. Disciple making isn't easy. It's hard, and we know that to be true. Disciple, the making of disciples is hard, but why does he say, go therefore and make disciples? Why does he say that? What does he say just prior to that? He says, therefore, go and make disciples. What's the therefore, therefore? All authority in heaven and on earth has been given unto me. All authority now that sounds like a charge to a people, doesn't it? All authority has been given unto me, so I'm telling you, go and make disciples. All that is to say that God is interested in multiplication. Well, what are God's methods of multiplication? That gets to our text today. That's what I want to talk about, God's methods of multiplication. And one of his methods is patience. One of God's methods of multiplication, one of God's methods of, of growing the church, and if I can say it this way, I struggle with the language, if I'm a butcher in the language, you'll forgive me, but it's his patience. It's his patience, and what do I mean by that? Look what's happening in verse 56 through the first part of verse 1 in Acts chapter 8. Acts seven fifty-six. And Stephen is speaking, and he said, Behold, I see heaven opened up and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Wow, is that tremendous. But they cried out with a loud voice and covered their ears and rushed at him with one impulse. Steve, I really like the way you read that. You read it, you put us right into the, the situation there. They rushed at him with one impulse. When they had driven him out of the city, they began stoning him. And the witnesses laid aside their robes at the feet of a young man named Saul. They went on stoning Stephen as he called on the Lord and said, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Nothing was going to keep them from stoning Stephen. Then falling on his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Having said this, he fell asleep. Saul was in hearty agreement with putting him to death. And on that day, a great persecution began against the church. In Jerusalem, one of God's methods of multiplication is patience. The thing we need to know is that God is not operating on our timetable. That's what I'm trying to get at here. It's not our methods. It's not our timetables. It's His. His ways are higher than our ways. His thoughts are higher than our thoughts. I mean, look what's happening there. This terrible event. It's a horrific 
seen. Because I was a farmer for a little while, I've seen some animals in difficult straits, but I've never seen one stoned. And I've had to pull dead carcasses and, and do some things, and I, I can't imagine what this would be like seeing someone stoned. It's, an, it's a horrific scene. What began as, a, as just differing views, the synagogue of the freedmen, they believe this. Stephen believes that. They begin debating and arguing about that. What began as just that becomes a debate, and then false accusations are hurled, and then a trial and more false accusations, and now this execution. And then the enemies of the gospel feel emboldened and this great persecution breaks out. Once one of these Christians is stoned, the enemies of the gospel, the enemies of Christ, feel emboldened, empowered, and this persecution breaks out against the church. Where is God in all of that? That's the question, right? That young lady was wondering that this morning in our missions moment. God, I don't want to be here. That's what she was saying. I, I don't want to be here now. Take me out of this place. You know, the nation of Israel rejects Jesus when He comes. They crucify the Lord of glory, Peter tells them, and now they've rejected the risen and exalted Lord that Stephen is powerfully testifying to. Look, I see heaven open and a Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. None of that gives them pause. And it, so in these verses, we got these two individuals, two other individuals, not, the, not Theophilus, the politician, and Luke, the doctor. But it's Stephen and Saul. And they're set before us in contrast. Two young men, at least Saul is a young man, it's believed Stephen is as well. But these two men are set before us in contrast. Stephen is this man who's full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom and faith and power and full of peace. The peace of the Holy Spirit is all over him, isn't it? Lord, forgive them. Don't hold this charge. Don't hold this sin against them. Do not hold this sin. Wow. That, that is a peace that just has overcome him by the Holy Spirit. He's full of forgiveness and grace, full of the Holy Spirit, totally focused on Christ. By contrast, look at Saul here, who's full of himself, full of the wisdom of this world, full of hatred and um, violence. Paul's self-assessment in other places in the Scripture, and I'm not going to tell you where these are at, but you'll, they'll sound familiar to you. He says, I was once a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man. This is Saul, who becomes Paul, Apostle Paul. This is his self-assessment. He's looking, he looks back to what he was. Back when Stephen is being stoned and at other points in his life when this great persecution breaks out, he's a big part of that. He says, I was once a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man. He calls himself the worst of sinners. What a contrast. Stephen, if, you're gonna, if I'm going to put them together, you'd have Stephen who would be the best of saints, wouldn't he? The model saint and the worst of sinners and who is dying that day? The best of saints. Where is God in all of that? But 
Paul says he had an obsession against Christians. He cast his vote for the death of other believers. What a contrast. Here's Stephen speaking of the God of glory and seeing the glory of God. And there's Saul guarding the coats and giving approval to those who are killing Stephen. Just a side note on that. When Just something to think about. These people are going to stone Stephen. These self-righteous individuals, these religious people are going to stone Stephen. And what do they take the time to do? It is startling to me when I think about this. They're taking time to take off their outer garment. Don't get it dirty. They don't want to be dirty on the outside. They can't have that. they they got to look righteous, right? They can't have no filth on there. How dark is the heart that does that, hey? And then, and then think of this. There is uh, Saul standing there having to guard those coats. What kind of culture are they in that their coats wouldn't have been, their cloaks wouldn't have been safe just laying on the ground there? What kind of culture is that? Remember, this is at Jerusalem. People should have been cared for there, but they weren't, hey? But what a contrast between Stephen and Saul. But I'm talking about God's methods of multiplication today. And so what do we do with this? Where was God? And that's where I want it to sound like Paul Harvey here, but then there's the rest of the story, right? And we know it well. The rest of the story regarding Saul shows us how God's patience is a method he uses for multiplication. If we were there that day, we would not see that. Just think about how we might get in a hurry to see to see results, hey? We're results-oriented people. We want to get things done. We want to see things happen. We don't want opposition. We don't want that. We may think when we and our message are rejected that we have failed. We might just think, well, that didn't go anywhere. That was a total failure. That was a, a waste of time. I, I shared the gospel with this person for 10 years. Now I don't even know what happened to that person. He's not even a part of my life anymore. But the rest of the story isn't written yet, is it? The rest of the story with regard to Saul isn't written yet. We might think, man, the gospel message seems so simple to understand. Why is it I share it with this person and they don't get it? Well, the gospel message does seem simple to understand to a believer, but think back before you were a believer. I was an adult when I became a believer. I can think back. The gospel message didn't seem that simple to understand to me at all. But now, now it does. And we may get discouraged. But it should be an encouragement to us that God is patient, and so we need to be as well. The writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews 12.3, Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. The acknowledgement there is there is a possibility of growing weary as a Christian and losing heart because of opposition to our message, opposition to us. 
if you think of it here, when Stephen is being stoned, God could have sent flaming stones from heaven onto the heads of those who were stoning Stephen, but he doesn't do it. He doesn't do it because God is patient. And he's patient because he doesn't want anyone, he doesn't want anyone to perish. That's why he's patient. I began with talking about Luke and Theophilus and said that Luke wanted to have reliable information, so he went to the eyewitnesses to write the Gospel of Luke. He, he wanted first-hand accounts. I, I love First and Second Peter because when you read First and Second Peter, when I read it, I'm thinking, this is a man that was there with Jesus. He walked with Jesus. He ate with Jesus. He, he denied Christ and then was restored back into this wonderful relationship, um, Jesus never went anywhere, but Peter did, right? And this restoration happened. And Peter was so mightily of the Lord. And he wasn't a perfect man. In fact, Paul had to confront him at some point along the way in their ministry because he, he kind of went backwards a little bit. But when you read First and Second Peter, you just read this beautiful words, he says. So what's Peter's view regarding God's patience? 2 Peter 3.9, The Lord is not slack concerning His promise, as some men count slackness, or He's not slow as some people would count slowness. But He is long-suffering, or He is patient toward us, not willing that any, per not willing that any should perish, but that all would come to repentance. How, according to Peter, how many does God want to see perish? Not any. According to Peter, how many does God desire to see come to repentance? All. All. You know, it is this same Saul that is here giving hearty approval to the stoning of Stephen who later writes to a young man named Timothy and he speaks of uh, Jesus in this way. God our Savior who wants all men to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. And in 1 Timothy 4.10, he says, he speaks of a, the living God who is the Savior of all men, especially of those who believe. And it's Saul who's going to write Romans chapter 9, and when he writes that, he says, um, God will have mercy on whom He will have mercy. But then he concludes that thought in Romans chapter 11, verse 32, and he says this, For God has shut up all in, all in disobedience so that He may show mercy to all. It's the same man that is there giving hearty approval to the stoning of Stephen that says in Romans 10, 9, and 10 that if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified. It's with your mouth that you confess and are saved. And in Romans 10, 13, For whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. It's this same Saul, who is Paul, who writes that. God has methods of multiplications, and one of those methods is His patience. God is patient. He could have toasted. When Jesus is on the cross, and they say, if you're the Son of God, why don't you get yourself down from there? Not only could He have got Himself down from there, Without even moving a finger, he could have toasted them all. Vaporized every one of them. But he doesn't do it because God is a loving God and he's patient. 
He's patient. One of God's methods of multiplication, of bringing people into a relationship with Him and in building the church is His patience. He, he demonstrates His patience. Or maybe think of His patience in this way. Our Lord is a builder. Our Lord is a builder. Jesus said, I will build my church. He's claiming that He's building something. He's not tearing something down. And He's claiming ownership of the thing He is building. I will build my church. He's not tearing anything down. He's building. Psalm 127.1 Unless the Lord builds the house, its builders labor in vain. Jesus says in John 10.10 The thief comes only to kill, steal, and destroy. Our, our Lord is a builder. The thief comes to kill, steal, and destroy. But our God is a patient builder. His construction process is not according to our blueprints. That's what I'm trying to get at. Okay? Sometimes we have people in our lives and, and we're desiring to see things happen, but we, we've got to wait on God's timing. He doesn't operate on our, on our timetable. He doesn't use our blueprints. He's not looking at our blueprints and saying, yep, I see how you got that mapped out. That's how it's going to happen. He doesn't do that. And every stone that he, that he uses must be fashioned to the stone the builders rejected, which has become the capstone. That's the foundation stone, the chief cornerstone, the living stone, rejected by men but chosen by God and precious to Him. Peter also writes in 1 Peter 2.5, You also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house. Being built into. I love that language. You also are being built into a spiritual house. That, that talks about a building process, doesn't it? It's a process. Built into a spiritual house. To be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Christ Jesus. The Lord does not tear down the house He is building. He builds it up. It is a building process. And you, if you say, okay, First Peter, that's only written to Jews, let me give you from the, from, from the letter to the Ephesians what, what Paul says, Saul, here, who becomes Paul. In Ephesians 2, uh, 21 and 22, in him the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him you two are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by His Spirit. You are being what? Built together. He's not tearing something down. He's building something up. And He's patient. He's patient as He does it. He is patient. He is patient. He is patient. We ought to be patient with one another. We ought to be patient with those we witness to, with those we share the Gospel with. We ought to understand that God is patient. And if He's patient, we ought to be patient because He doesn't need to be patient with any of us. All of sin and fall short of His glory. He's patient. The building still being built, and in, it, in, in the individuals that are being spoken of in Ephesians two twenty one and twenty two, as part of that building, which is a spiritual house, are being joined together, not sawn apart. 
Patrick was in Colossians this morning, 2.19. I had to write it down here. It says, The entire body being supplied and held together by the joints and ligaments grows with a growth which is from God. It's a, it's an organism. And it's growing. It's being built by God. Our God is a builder. He's patient because He doesn't want any to perish. He's patient because He's building something. These next two points are a little shorter and I'll touch on them next week. But God is still multiplying the church. But one of His methods of multiplication is patience. Another method of multiplication is providence. I thought about saying one of His methods of multiplication was persecution. But it gave me pause a little bit. Because the persecution comes. But I don't think it would be safe to say that God is the first cause of the persecution, right? The enemies of God are bringing the persecution. God doesn't... God isn't the author of evil. So one of the other methods God uses of multiplication is His providence. In, in verses 1-3, through three, Saul was in hearty agreement with putting him to death, and on that day a great persecution began against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Some devout men buried Stephen and made loud lamentation over him, but Saul began ravaging the church, entering house after house, and dragging off men and women. He would put them in prison. Providence. One of God's methods of multiplication is His providence. Providence is God's preserving and governing all things by the means of second causes. And that's seen throughout the Bible, right? You intended it for evil, but God meant it for good to save many souls alive. That's seen throughout the whole Bible. It's all over the place. On that day, a great persecution broke out against the church at Jerusalem. And they were scattered. Acts 8.1, this scattering, is Acts 1.8 happening in real time. Jesus said, uh, don't worry about the things you're worried about. about the, will you restore the kingdom at this time? But He says, don't worry about that. But you shall be My witnesses. When the Holy Spirit comes upon you, you shall be My witnesses unto, in Jerusalem, unto Judea and Samaria, to the uttermost parts of the earth. And here it's happening in real time. Acts 8.1 is Acts 1.8 happening in real time. Jesus said, you will be my witnesses. And just think about that. What Jesus says is going to happen is going to happen. He says, I'm coming again to receive you to myself. We can believe that to be true. So the persecution comes and the church is scattered and the word used there for scattered is the same, the root of that word is the same word used for scattering seed. The Word of God is just spread all over the place. The point of the persecution from the perspective of those doing the persecuting is to snuff out the Gospel fire. That's, that's, that's the point of the persecution from the perspective of the persecutors is to snuff out the Gospel fire. Stephen is proclaimed this powerful Gospel message and they want to snuff that out. But it doesn't do that, does it? 
Stephen's, Stephen's message was not a lukewarm sermon. It brought with it intense, the intense heat of conviction. And God is able to accomplish His purposes through that persecution. What they intended for evil, God used to spread the gospel. Where they thought they ruled, God overruled. Persecution didn't diminish the church, it multiplied it. We might talk more on that next week. But persecution scatters, it sanctifies, it purifies the church. In verse 3 it says some devout men or some god some devout men or godly men buried Stephen and made loud lamentation over him. It's not easy. When persecution comes and life is lost, it's not easy. We're not to take it lightly, we're not to be cavalier about it. Psalm one sixteen fifteen says, Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. God is not cavalier about the suffering of the saints. Jesus says to Saul, Jesus says to Saul when he meets him on the Damascus road, what? Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Jesus feels that persecution. Jesus feels that opposition. You're never alone. I'll never leave you nor forsake you. How, how much does that verse mean to you with just that thought? If there's opposition and, and persecution, I'll never leave you nor forsake you. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? He says. And the persecution didn't go away. It intensifies in verse 3. But Saul began ravaging the church, entering house after house and dragging off men and women. He would put them in prison. The language there is language that depicts a wild animal loose in a ripe cornfield or loose in a garden, a, a wild boar. I raised pigs. If the pigs got into Cindy's garden, it would have been a mess. We didn't let that happen. They don't care what they do. They, they're just oblivious. They'll eat anything, lay on anything, trash everything, make a big mud pile out of everything. That's the picture here. Saul doesn't care. He's just ravaging the church. I mean, think of that scene. Here's this family that has trusted Jesus, a husband and a wife, maybe some kids, and all the joy of that new life they have in Christ and being part of the fellowship, part of a church. And now they're being dragged out of their home because they refuse to deny their Lord. It happens still today. But just with just a minute of thought about that, think of this. There is really no neutral ground for a believer. We, we live here. We have these freedoms. We come in here. We don't feel like uh, Soren mentioned that maybe in Michigan some people will get a hard time today, but we don't feel any concern for that today. We're just here comfortably worshiping our Lord, looking into His Word, uh, singing hymns to Him. But that doesn't mean we're on neutral ground, does it? Because we have an enemy that goes around like a roaring lion. There's, there's no neutral ground for the believer. It doesn't matter if you're in Iran or right here in the States. There's no neutral ground. Different battles, no neutral ground. Saul, Paul, also says this to Timothy in 2 Timothy 3.16, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Persecution is to be expected. 
But God is able by His providence to use it to multiply the church. It does leave me with a question. If we are never persecuted for our faith, why not? If that never happens in any way, shape, or form, at the workplace or in the home or or on the street corner or somewhere, if that never happens, if everyone just looks at us and says, I'm going to use just the name Billy Bob. There's no Billy Bob in here. Billy Bob is a great guy. I love everything about Billy Bob. There's never any negative because Billy Bob is in Christ that comes Billy Bob's way. The question has to come to mind, why why would that be the case? All who want to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted in some form or another. So we're talking about methods of multiplication that God uses. His patience, His providence, He overrules. With that, let's say you're a person that's maybe a little timid uh, and you don't know exactly how to share the gospel and things like that. I'm not talking about going out and getting in people's face and being aggressive or anything like that, but let me just encourage you. The Lord can guide you. Be praying for opportunities to share your faith. And when the God provides, when the Lord provides that opportunity, walk through that door with confidence. With confidence. All authority on heaven and earth has been given unto me. Third, the third method God uses of multiplication is preaching. And we've got just a just a few words about this. Um the church is growing because of the emphasis on preaching the Word. Verse 4 and 5, Therefore those who had been scattered went about preaching the Word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria, and what did he do? What did he, do? he began proclaiming Christ to them. Here is uh, uh, Stephen and Philip. These guys are set aside to be deacons in the church. They're not set aside to be uh, an elder or a pastor. They're not set aside to be... Um, uh, a preacher necessarily, but they're deacons. And what do they find themselves doing? Preaching the word. Stephen preaches maybe the most powerful sermon in the entire book of Acts. It is so powerful, he loses his life for it. And it's part of Saul's conversion story. And here's Philip, this other deacon, this man that is... the. And dwelt with the Holy Spirit that what well, he can't help himself but, but to proclaim Christ. The church has been scattered. They've been shoved out of Jerusalem. They've had to flee. And wherever they go, what are they doing? They're talking about Jesus. It's just coming up. Why is that? Why would that be the case for these guys? Why would it be the case for this church that was scattered? Because they have that kind of relationship with the Lord. That close relationship they can't help talking about the one who loved them so much he died for them and so they love him and because they love him they have to talk about him they have to i love my grandchildren i can't help but talking you guys probably get sick of hearing me mentioning my grandchildren i would show you picture after picture after picture if you'd sit and look at it why because i love them uncontrollably just love them i can't even describe how much i love them right i love jesus even more I shouldn't I proclaim him more? Yes. And we all should. We, we sh- what is in here about Jesus should come out. It should come out. And, and if it's not coming out, then 
you just assess for yourself, what is in here for me? What is in here concerning my Lord? The emphasis here is on preaching because faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of Christ. They preached the Word wherever they went. They couldn't keep quiet because they had an unchanging and uncontainable message. And they didn't get scattered in this new area and start preaching themselves. They didn't, you know, they got scattered and now they're talking about, well, this is my favorite football team and this is that and this is that and this is how I think about this and this is what I think about this politician and that's what I think about. They didn't do that. They got scattered and they proclaimed Christ. That's what they proclaimed. They didn't keep silent about their faith. Just in closing, just to remind us, God's methods of multiplication, He takes ordinary people and uses them to proclaim His extraordinary message. I'm sure a few months prior to Stephen and Philip becoming deacons in the church and, and serving the widows that needed to be served and taking care of that function, they never thought they would be doing the things they were doing. They never saw it coming. God takes ordinary people and uses them to proclaim His extraordinary message. He takes terrible persecution and propels His church into fruitful ministry through it. And He can place His church on rich ground that is ready to receive the seed of His Word. He is a patient builder, not wanting any to perish, but all to come to repentance. Okay. That's all I have for you today. Let me close in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, I want to thank You for Your Word. Thank You for our time in Your Word. I pray You bless this message to Your people and bless us this week as You give us opportunities to share the love of Christ with others. Father, I pray for those opportunities for each one that's here. Give us opportunities to talk about Jesus and what He's done for us. That prior to Him, we were without hope. But since coming to faith in Him, we have forgiveness, justification, freedom from sin, freedom to live a righteous life in Him, the ability to do that. Redemption. We've been bought with a price, the precious price of His blood. He did for us what we could not do for ourselves. He made us righteous before You. We were deserving wrath. He lived a sinless life and died in our place that we don't have to incur the wrath that is to come. Thank you for Jesus. In His name I pray. Amen.